Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schimmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone, and happy holidays. I thought I'd change things up a little bit for the next three weeks as we head into the winter break. I say three weeks because the podcast is going to be taking a two-week break over the holidays, so there will be no podcast on December 21st or the 28th, but we will be back with a new episode on January 4th, so two more after today, and then we'll be on that uh, bit of a break over the holiday season. You know, holiday music that reminds me of someplace warm is always a good thing in my mind. I've never had Christmas on the beach or in a warm climate yet, so that is definitely on the to-do list. Uh, you know, clearly this year it's not possible, but I'm sure it will happen one day. Well, I'm going to make it happen because it's always something I've thought would be a, a great experience. High drama in fantasy football this week. I'm currently leading my opponent, but my opponent has two players left, and according to the projections, should end up beating me. Uh, that will make next week's final regular season game critical for playoff positioning, but it's not over yet. Still got to play the game, so we'll see what happens. I, of course, will update you next week on what happened and then what ha what's happening in the final weekend because I know my fantasy football trials and tribulations are what truly matter to you. It's why you subscribe to the podcast, right? Look, I know there are a lot of podcasts out there, and I just want to thank you again for choosing to listen, especially to the listeners who listen every week. I appreciate your loyalty and, and your feedback and all of that. I also want to welcome any new listeners that are out there joining me for the first time. Your listening and maybe even subscribing means a lot, and I appreciate the support. Any ratings or reviews on Apple Podcasts would be greatly appreciated, especially those of the five-star variety. Those ones are really appreciated, but again, only if you're up for it. I appreciate it. This week, I have Tara Barton, who's joining me all the way from Melbourne, Australia. You know, speaking of warm weather for the holidays, uh, Tara's joining me for the interview today. Tara is the founder and director of ServeLearn. Uh, it is her consulting and leadership company that focuses on how teachers and schools can implement a service learning model. So we dig deep into that and we make some connections between 21st century skills and more authentic learning experience. So it's a great conversation about service learning. Two questions in Assessment Corner this week, one about the role of memorization and one about distinguishing between tasks and assessments. So two questions there. That's today's plan. Lots to get to. So let's get to it. We'll have my conversation with Tara Barton about service learning coming up shortly. But first, don't at me. But I want to open this week by telling you to go ahead and get it wrong. This pandemic has been an incredibly stressful time for all of us. The uncertainty, the personal stories of loss, the hardships people have faced, even the stress of disagreement about so many aspects of this pandemic within families or even households has been challenging, to put it mildly. That said, and as I've said a few times already in previous episodes, there is a small silver lining in that this pandemic has forced teachers, principals, district leaders to acutely audit everything in their instructional repertoires. As schools have had to pivot from virtual learning to hybrid models, back to face-to-face, -to, -face, to virtual, to hybrid, and so on. Even the schedules. 
Many schools I work with have gone to a quarter system in order to absorb some of the potential angst should a pivot back to remote learning be necessary in a face-to-face model. One district I work with that's face-to-face right now is in an octet system. One class, five hours a day, five weeks. Is that ideal for learning? Of course not. But we have to do what we think will minimize the disrupt. There's no eliminating the disrupt because our entire society has been disrupted, but we try to minimize it. But the silver lining that none of us have experienced this before provides an opportunity. And we talked about the upside of down a couple weeks ago. It provides the opportunity to try new things. But so many teachers, schools, even districts, seem to be so hesitant. They seem to be overly cautious or worried about getting it wrong. So I just want to say, for what it's worth, go for it and prepare to get it wrong because your wrong isn't going to be wrong. Yes, if you're a brand new teacher or are teaching a subject you've never taught before, I get it. You might want to hesitate to try new things because you're uncertain about the possibilities or you might not even be able to envision what that new might look like because of limited familiarity with the subject, the content, the skills. Okay, fine. I understand that. But to the rest of you, go for it. Seriously, what are you afraid of? Getting it wrong? Well, I've got news for you. You will. Have you ever implemented anything new in your life, professionally or personally, and not got it wrong at least partially the first time? Okay, so what's the problem? Here's the thing. You're wrong is not as wrong as you think. Your wrong is just going to be a version of right. I trust teachers to make, at minimum, bare minimum, competent decisions when it comes to students. Whatever you decide to implement, to change, or to try, is going to be at least good. Your wrong is not going to be egregious. Now, if you think it might, well, sure, run the idea by a colleague, maybe. I think the real issue here is not so much being wrong as it is not being perfect. Now, perfect is boring, not to mention not even really possible. The most authentic thing you can say to your students is, hey, I've never done this before, and I thought it would be worth exploring or trying, or I thought it'd be more engaging, or I thought you guys might like that. Let me know what you think. For some reason, there is a cohort in our profession. I'm not going to put a number to it because I actually don't know. If it's a, I don't know if it's a few or a lot. I just know it's some, okay? There's a cohort who can't seem to make a move unless everything is perfectly aligned, right? You know those colleagues, right? They're the ones who are preparing to prepare so they can prepare to prepare for the preparation for the preparation to finally prepare to implement something new in six years. Stop it. Given that we have to at least be prepared to pivot to hybrid learning, remote, back to -to face-to-face, now is the time to push yourself and push each other to new and refined assessment practices, instructional practices, feedback practices, self-assessment practices, maybe exploring project-based learning or inquiry-based learning. The worst thing you risk if what you try doesn't work seamlessly is your pride. Get over it. What do you think is going to happen? The strategy won't go as well The idea won't be executed as well. The students may not learn as much. 
How in the world are you going to know if anything works until you try it? Instead of spending a disproportionate amount of time worried about why something won't work, maybe give an equal amount of time to the idea that it just might be better. Remember Teresa Amabile's 1983 quote from episode one. Quote, only pessimism sounds profound, optimism sounds superficial, end quote. Now, while I don't disagree with her assertion that that is the way people interpret it or the way they think, I think the fact that that is the way is a bunch of, well, I'm sure you can fill in that blank. Don't buy into it. Being an optimist about potential successes doesn't mean you ignore realities. There's nothing worse as a teacher than the grizzled old veteran looking over the top of their reading glasses, taking a parental tone while listing the 101 ways your idea won't work because, well, we tried that back in the 90s and it didn't work. How about this? You tried that back in the 90s and couldn't make it work. I can. How about that? Yes, experience does count for something. But the unsolicited advice or or the so-called wisdom put upon those energetic about possibilities will do nothing but undercut the sense of camaraderie on staff. I sure hope those expressions don't come from ego in that the person is thinking, I'll look bad if you make that work when I couldn't. While I hope that isn't the case, it wouldn't be the first time I heard someone say, hey, take it easy. You're making the rest of us look bad. Slow down. Now, I've never had anybody say that to me, but I can tell you that if they did over the course of my career, it would have backfired. Two of my favorite expressions come to mind as I think about going for it and getting it wrong. The first is, experience comes from poor judgment. In this case, the judgment will be not as right, but not poor. Your decisions about trying new strategies or approaches or assessment practice will either be good, really good, or great. You're either, as the expression goes, you're either succeeding or you're learning. There is no failure. So just go for it. You'll learn more by doing than sitting idly and overthinking it. And two, my other favorite expression is, quote, ignorance on fire is better than knowledge on ice. Now, obviously you need to have a foundation. So we're not talking about true ignorance here because you have your experience and your expertise. So what are you waiting for? Bring the heat and learn by doing. Get fired up about the fact that you might have a professional breakthrough, that something will happen that will positively and forever change your career for the better. What about that possibility? Now, leaders, you play a role in this too. District leaders, Do you encourage a culture of risk-taking and forward-thinking practices? Or are you so overly fearful of pushback from parents, from families, from the community that you send a message, direct or indirectly, to play it safe? Don't rock the boat. Stay steady. Principles. Are you on the front end of creative thinking about how we can best serve learners, both from an engagement and a learning perspective? Are you thinking about that? Or are you also fearful that a small minority of families, parents, community might make your life a little uncomfortable for you by not liking the changes? This whole, the parents or families won't like it gets way overplayed. On the one hand, as I said to you before, 
they do have the right to be heard. But on the other hand, if what you're doing is defensible and supported with research, then the fact they won't like it is irrelevant. This is exactly where principles have to run interference and support those pushing themselves to create a more engaging learning environment, especially now. Leaders, we can say we support risk-taking all we want to, you know, in the abstract. But if our actions don't match our words, then those who are most forward-thinking are going to feel unsupported, and those who play it safe are going to feel vindicated. Teachers, I trust you. We are generally a conservative bunch. I'm not talking politically. I'm just talking about our risk-taking. Fight that temptation and go for it. Get it wrong because, as I said, your wrong won't be as wrong as you think and it will put you one step closer to being more right. Joining me today is Tara Barton. Tara is the Director of Serve Learn Educational Consultants and is joining us today from Melbourne, Australia. Tara and I first met in South Africa when Tara was a teacher at the American International School in Johannesburg. And I was in Johannesburg doing a three-day workshop and we connected there. Uh, I was working with the school. And since then, Tara has left her teaching position and started her own leadership and consulting company, Serve Learn. And that is why I've asked Tara to join me today because uh, really intrigued by this idea. And I think a lot of listeners will, will enjoy what Tara has to say about service learning. Uh, Tara and I share actually a number of schools that we work with. We, we haven't worked directly together in the schools simultaneously, but we, we have worked with many schools uh, that, that overlap, including the American International School in Lagos, Nigeria. And we've also spoken at many uh, conferences at the same time as well. So um, I've always been very impressed with Tara's work and really intrigued by this idea of service learning. So uh, with all of that, Tara, uh, I really want to welcome you uh, to the Tom Schimmer podcast. I'm excited for our conversation today. Thanks, Tom. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and I have been for a while because, you know, uh, a lot of folks talk about service learning or they maybe think about service learning light, but I really want to get into what the substance of service learning is, and I'm, I'm really excited to have you here. But I want to go on a bit of a tangent to begin with, because as I said in the introduction, uh, Tara is joining us from Melbourne, Australia, and of course, in this time of COVID, uh, you know, the situation in Australia has been in the news here in North America, for sure. Uh, recently, you know, Australia has instituted very strict lockdown procedures and quarantine rules that you all have just come out of. So for our listening audience, just, you know, and from your perspective, uh, did it work? Uh, what's the status of COVID right now as far as, uh, uh, you know, Melbourne and Australia in general? And, and what was your experience with, with that lockdown? And from your perspective, you know, how successful was it? Right, so uh, I've been in lockdown pretty much for eight months um, and I've been in two countries. So I was in South Africa when the first lockdown happened. I missed my flight by a day. Uh, so my boys and I were five weeks in lockdown in uh, Johannesburg and you couldn't leave your house except to go get groceries and that was like once once a week you were supposed to sort of head out you weren't allowed to go out and exercise so mm. we were lucky we had a big backyard so um you know the kids and i would run around and that was fine um and then the day before that finished i got the flight home with the boys and then we did two weeks in quarantine in melbourne in at a hotel 
Uh, testing was optional on the second test. First test we got done when we first arrived, it was negative. Um, and then some people, you know, didn't take the second test. So then a second wave hit from people that came out of quarantine who didn't take the second test. So we were, we opted to have the test because I've got an elderly father that I wanted to make sure I, you know, we were definitely all clear before we went and saw him. Um, and it was still, things were open still then um, for two weeks and then the second wave hit. And then, you know, we got up to a thousand cases and per day and, and, you know, our government just decided that's it, we're gonna lock it down. Um, mixed reactions. I've definitely got friends that are on one side of the fence and I'm sort of in between. I sort of, you know, listen to both sides and um, I feel grateful that we are now COVID free. And, you know, people complained about it and the economy has suffered, but I think the economy can recover. Um, I'd rather be alive and health and safe <laughs> than, you know, be so worried about that but I know a lot of businesses have struggled during the time so I can yeah. see both sides um, but the government's really supportive and helps people you know um, with benefits and things like that so yeah, um, yeah. it's uh, it, it's been interesting just from afar to listen to because you, you know sometimes mm -hmm. you see things you don't know what's true and what's not true and all of that and it has yeah. I mean I think it's 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 wrong to look at one side and ignore the other it has taken mm -hmm. its toll on businesses it has taken its toll on people's mental health. And we, we can't mm -hmm. ignore that side of it either. But uh, yeah. at the same time, nobody wants to just, you know, be fast and loose with COVID and, and trying to find our way through that. And so it's great to hear that the government's been very supportive of, of individuals, but also of businesses to try yeah. to help help bridge those those gaps yeah, so hopefully lots uh, yeah. yeah lots of yeah. initiatives to try and you know generate work again so I mean I think things will pick up again now now things are open again which is yeah. really nice and we've had no cases yeah. we're COVID free for a month now which is lovely right. and it's summer for you and, yes uh, yeah so that's <laughs> you can go uh, out and enjoy paddle boarding that's <laughs> <laughs> always nice okay let's uh let's let's shift gears here and and get into exactly why you why i invited you onto the podcast and this is about service learning so let's start with the big overarching question which is what is service learning and why from your perspective tara is it so important so most people know of community service and, and it's it, in Australia, it's quite unknown service learning. So I, you know, I, it's even hard to sort of, you know, have a conversation with people because most people don't understand it. In America, you know, most people understand what service learning is, but um, it's always been one of those questions that comes up and, you know, you've got to, I, I find it's easier just to break it down into parts. So, um, like I said, most people know community and service and, you know, that's a big part of it, but we need to include learning in that um, equation and that's where service learning comes in. So, the, the way I've been um, taught service learning and been practicing service learning with teachers is through the five stages. Okay. Um, and the five stages really help students and teachers um, understand how to get to action in a positive and meaningful way. And so that has been helpful for schools and, and students being able to do that individually on their own. So really it's about connecting transdisciplinary skills and dispositions. So um, often schools aren't teaching those skills and dispositions that we really need. And um, I find service learning as one of those things that can help 
you know, get kids out into the community and helping the community um, understanding their needs um, and um, using things like concepts. So if you look at concepts in the curriculum, um, I've found that has been a really great way for teachers to be able to um, integrate service learning. So if you look at a concept like sustainability, um, students can look at that from many different lenses and then they use the five stages to be able to um, go, go and do some sort of action um, based on the needs of the community. So it's, it's more about infusing these concepts into uh, yeah. different subject areas and, and yeah and to, so yeah. and that's what makes it um you know cross-disciplinary as well which mm -hmm. is great um so it can be in any subject area you know um mm -hmm. so um our curriculum that we've created uh is really about um having those concepts and units basically mm -hmm. um and we've set it up in a way that you know, every grade level to start with has a concept that they're working on, you know, K-12. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that everyone is doing service on the same day of the week, basically, okay. you know, one hour once a week. And that way, all students are doing service learning and all teachers are involved with service learning at the same mm -hmm. time. And it's not, often in schools, it's one person's job to sort of do service learning, but every school vision and mission is about, you know, raising responsible global citizens right but right. we often don't think about how we are actually doing that in schools mm -hmm. and so um, what happens if you have a service learning program is that you you know you've got kids that come out and, and want to do service it's an intrinsic motivation they they're passionate about what they do mm -hmm. um, because they've had those opportunities and so you know a big part of what we need to be doing in schools is offering those opportunities for students for right. that collaborative learning with the community that is such a good point about, you know, how often we put in our mission statements or vision statements. So, you know, the idea of a, a global citizen or responsible global citizen or, mm -hmm. you know, but, but do we, when do we get to the point where we actually talk about how we're going to develop that? I was uh, intrigued by uh, the Venn diagram that uh, is on your website and that you, yeah. you definitely spend a lot of time uh, sort of sharing and the idea about those three essential components of service learning, mm -hmm. uh, teaching and learning. And you mentioned that earlier about the, the learning mm -hmm. part being important. So there's the teaching and learning part, there's the collaboratives and the partnerships, mm -hmm. right? And of course, there's the service part. That's those yeah. sort of three together, bring together mm -hmm. that service learning part. So how do all three of those interrelate uh, more specifically? And in your mind, how do they bring together the ideal of what service learning can be all about? Yeah, well, I... I suppose it's it's important to, for schools to know where they're at too. So we have a, a survey on our website, so people can you know take that for free and know exactly where they're at. But you have to have partnerships with the community. You need to look at what's happening in the curriculum. So when I was talking about the concepts, so if we if we just even look at the curriculum and and um, the partnerships, bringing those together, bringing experts to to students to understand important global issues mm -hmm. and then the service comes that's the the latter part so we shouldn't be jumping straight into service we need to understand that the community partners and I say collaboratives because 
sometimes we don't always have a, a partnership that is, you know, um, reciprocal all year long. It, it might be that a partnership, uh, a collaborative is just like a one-off, like you might be working with someone from the UN on human rights. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what I'd probably call a collaborative, maybe once off during the year, during a unit, they might get the experts in. So, um, but a partnership should be an ongoing reciprocal relationship during the year. Um, and ideally working with many different um, students and different groups, depending on what their needs are. Mm -hmm. And we want to have a range of partnerships. So when we look at partnerships with schools, we're looking at, do we have a partnership with the environment, um, working with people, working with animals, because then we're sort of covering all of those areas that students are interested in as well. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, many different partners you can have. And, you know, when, when I was at ASJ, we had, you know, so many, it was, you know, yeah. <laughs> the yeah. overcapacity with partners at some stage. So, yeah. you know, you have to develop things to be able to, you know, make sure your partnerships are sustainable and projects right. are sustainable and keep growing. That's it is, you know, it seems to me that it's such a, a wonderful way to build relevance into into the work we do with students to help them understand the whys of what they're learning and how connected they can be. And you're right, if you're talking about just people, then you leave out environment, you leave out animals, you leave out all of the opportunities that sort of, I guess, tap into student passion and the things that they care yeah. about and the things that they love. So that seems to me like a really great way when people talk about relevance in the curriculum, a service mm. learning model seems to be a way to really get at not just the global citizen part, but then also talking about how we can connect what the students are learning to a real authentic kind of experience, right? That level of authenticity. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. We talk about authenticity and you, you can't get more authentic than, than doing action with students, you know, in the community collaboratively yeah. with partners. I mean, right. it's a, it's a, that beautiful reciprocal relationship. They're learning from each other. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you can set up all sorts of, you know, projects in the classroom, but it's not mm -hmm. the same as, you know, getting out into the community. And, right. you know, there's different types of actions students can do as part of the server. So mm -hmm. we talked about, you know, the, the, you know, connecting the curriculum as well as the partners. But when we talk about that, the types of action students can do, I had a few um, teachers ask, well, we can't do service during, you know, lockdown and COVID. And I was like, what do you mean? There's there's many different types of action, you know, right. kids can be involved in. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's advocacy, you can do indirect, direct and research. Mm -hmm. So there's right. many different avenues and, you know, you can always do direct action later. You can still do all the research and prep yourself to be able to do the direct okay. action. But um, yeah, there are just different options. So it's getting kids to think okay, well, what else could I, you know, do while I'm at home and, and still be helping people in the community? Right. right. So is that, is that kind of the key to, you know, if, if my passion is not local, if my passion is, mm. say, say I have an environmental concern or, you know, something I'm yeah. very passionate about, but it's, it's not a local issue. It's more of a global issue. So mm -hmm. you can't really immerse me into that environment. So how do I, how does that, is that, is that what you're talking about with the indirect influence? Yeah, of indirect. So yeah. you might be creating a website for an organization um, that that's a need that they have, you know, mm -hmm. that they're, you know, a small business, they're doing great things, but they haven't got a marketing, you know, or they're, right. they're not on social media. So those mm -hmm. are the sorts of things students could be involved in to sort of help mm -hmm. out. Yeah. 
Um, it might be an advocacy campaign for that, you know, cause that they put on TikTok, you know. So there's there's mm -hmm. things kids can be doing and, and programs that they're interested in, apps that they love using. It's just matching those together. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, and, and maybe this is true of many adults, we kind of, um, mm -hmm. rightly or wrongly, probably wrongly, think of service as that direct hands-on, I'm, in, yeah. I'm immersed in that environment. But as you talk about a social media campaign or a website, yeah. marketing awareness, there's just so many ways that students can contribute in meaningful ways that don't require them to be in those environments. So I love that. Exactly. Yeah. Really, really great uh, perspective on that. So I know you talk about um, the five most essential uh, outcomes that drive personal growth and, and student development. And they are... Uh, a strong sense of identity. You talk about connection and uh, contribution to the world, which is clearly what we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. A strong sense of well-being, being confident and involved, and being effective communicators. So I want to ask you kind of a two-part question about those those five essential outcomes. Uh, yeah. Why those five? But more importantly, how does service learning? Uh, how does the model maximize the opportunity for students to grow in those five areas? So for me, I, I think it's 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 one of those things where kids they're they're sort of pushed to grow in those areas because they have to be able to communicate, they have to be able to problem solve, mm -hmm. um, they they need to have empathy to understand the issues and how they're gonna you know work with the community. So all of those I call them global competencies because okay. they're, they're skills and dispositions kids are gonna need in now and in the future. Right. So the more opportunities we can give for students to be able to be immersed um, in developing those skills. Um, I like to give students some, some goal setting and reflection at the start of the service learning process and even at the start of start of the year, at the start of the unit, whichever, um, where you know, kids self-assess those skills. So how am I a com communicator, whether I'm written or verbal or, you know, what skills do I actually need to improve? So they self-assess, they understand where they're at, and then they can set goals through their service learning or, or through their unit they're working on to actually improve on that. So it's about them knowing where they're at and knowing what they need to do to actually improve in that area. Yeah. It strikes me that uh, those five outcomes in a way are, are so immersed in the model that students don't necessarily even know that they're developing or learning in those areas because there's an urgency say around the cause that is forcing yeah. them to communicate forcing yeah i mean yeah. i mean and i mean forcing in a good way like it's i'm forced <laughs> to communicate because this is a cause i believe in i'm i'm, yeah. I'm forced to connect and contribute to my world because this matters mm -hmm. to me it just seems like there's a natural tie mm -hmm. there to the to the model there is and that's that intrinsic motivation you know you right. can't you know, you can force kids to, you know, do the math and do that. But if they see the, the purpose and why they're doing it and why that's so important mm -hmm. um, and how it's helping the community, like social entrepreneurship, you know, they can learn about business and, you know, um, all of those important skills that they're going to still use in the future. But they're also helping the community um, by solving those real world problems. Yeah, that, you know, and it just what a sense of accomplishment and a sense of contribution for students as they they really offer meaningful mm -hmm. and maybe they're not always able to solve the issue, 
but they're at least able to contribute to the pursuit of the solution to what's exactly. happening. Yeah. And, and often kids don't think they have anything to offer. Like, well, what right. am I going to do to actually help on that, you know, mm -hmm. issue or cause, but they have so much to offer. And it, and it is, it's yeah. about that pairing of something that they're passionate about. And that's, right. that's what sparks, you know, and they can't stop. I have many students that were in many different projects and I'd have to say, okay, I think you need to spend a bit more time on the academics as well. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, you're a little too passionate on this one here. Way Let's... too passionate. I'm so, like, calm down. <laughs> you're not quitting school. <laughs> yeah, no, I can see that. They go on to, to do careers in, in that field and, right. and I've seen that. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's beautiful, you know, they just... Yeah can't stop it's a it's a way to explore your passion and mm -hmm. and truly find out if it's something that you know would would drive you and fulfill you in terms of your profession mm -hmm. beyond school beyond it just being a project it's something exactly. that you, you care it goes beyond that yeah right, right. yeah taps taps into their their sense of contribution i love that now um you 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 talk a lot about collaborative learning. So this is going to be a, mm -hmm. be a bit of a lengthy setup here because mm -hmm. I have a number of converging thoughts that are kind of coming together for me over the last number of weeks. So I'm going to take a bit of time here to, uh, to craft the perspective and or question or at least the think aloud. Uh, so, so for you, Tara, and, and for the listening audience, uh, bear with me here for a moment. Um, so your emphasis on collaborative learning has me thinking and rethinking some assessment orthodoxy, as you know, but my mm -hmm. primary area of work is in, in assessment. Yeah. Um, and, and some of these, these thoughts are things that I've always believed in. In, you know, in, in fact, mm -hmm. these thoughts are kind of coming together and making me rethink. Uh, so again, this can be a bit of a long lead up here. So we have had in assessment almost this militant assertion or orthodoxy mm -hmm. that all achievement be measured individually that group scores are taboo, that uh, we need to be able to distinguish the individual's accomplishments and all of that. Mm. In episode, uh, episode two and three, I had Anthony Muhammad on and he said something that stuck with me. Um, and we were talking about the, def the definition of success within the context of equity and, and what is the Eurocentric mm. definition of success and, and how do we contrast that? And, and here's what he said. Uh, I'll, and quote, in European culture, individual success is more important than collective success. And he said, in tropical communities and communities of color, group success is more important than individual success. Individual success can sometimes be looked at as insulting. And he, he goes on to say that in some African cultures, if I stick out as a show off, I'm actually taking away from the group collective, end quote. Mm. So there's that. There's the, the idea of, okay, if we're thinking about uh, uh, equity and our broadest definition mm -hmm. that goes beyond that sort of traditional white Eurocentric view of what education is, there's that part, okay, as we expand our definition of success. So now we have this notion of a 21st century skill collaboration, one that we wanna nurture and develop. Mm -hmm. And then of course, you emphasize the idea of collaborative learning as being effective in facilitating service learning experiences. So all of this is kind of coming together for me to make me feel as though we're going to have to relax some of this individual success orthodoxy at some mm. point. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, everything being about the group. We're not talking about group reading levels or, or group math skills. We understand that part will always remain individual. Mm. But I'm wondering about creating some space uh, with some formal 
assessment or reporting or something mm -hmm. around the collective, not just the individual. You know, mm -hmm. I don't really have a clear yeah. answer for this. It's kind of a wondering mm -hmm. out loud, but mm -hmm. I, I just I'm just feel very compelled to consider is there a way for us to talk about not just my accomplishment, but my contribution to the collective? How do we, mm -hmm. in some small, medium, or large way, formalize that and talk a little bit mm -hmm. about the individual's contribution to the collective? Thoughts on that, Tara? What do you think? It's it's a, a great question and a, a great wondering. Uh, you've got me wondering. <laughs> <laughs> That's and, the point. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's a good one. Uh, I, I think kids, you know, they're the toughest on themselves and working in a group. You know, you, they're the first ones to say, you know, Jimmy hasn't been putting in and I do all the da, 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 da. Mm -hmm. And I think they're the best ones to come up with some sort of rubric assessment, self-assessment, mm -hmm. collaborative assessment on, you know, what is it that they need to do as a group to be able to perform and, and mm -hmm. what is everyone's roles and responsibilities? And so... As part of that service learning process, I talked about the five stages, mm -hmm. um, you know, they do the investigation and kids might be doing different things in the investigation, right? So in, in a group um, and they're, that they're all working on together, then they come back together once they know what the issue is and, mm -hmm. and the type of action that's needed. Um, then they come together and do the planning and preparation. And that's where mm -hmm. they, you know, come up with who's going to do what role. So I think kids are, are the best to come up with some sort of a mm -hmm. self-assessment as, you know, as an individual, they're self-assessing, but also as a, as a collective right. um, collaborative team. Yeah. It, 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 you know, I think of um, a parallel, you know, you think of professional sports where not mm. everyone on the team is the leaders so you have role players and, and not exactly. suggesting that students should take a back yes. seat, but, but how do we contribute to the collective? When I work for a business, mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, the, the company's success, you know, how do you separate marketing from product development? It kind of starts flowing together. Mm -hmm. So it just makes me wonder yeah. about how the how we can think about the collective and an individual's mm -hmm. contribution to collective as opposed to what do I get out of the collective? Almost exactly. an in, input yeah. versus an output idea. I don't know. I, I just yeah. I think it'd be something. And what are the impacts as a right. team, as a as a collaborative team, and for them right. to reflect on that mm -hmm. um, is really important during the process. You know, mm -hmm. not just at the end. Sometimes reflections one of the end things. You know, the the final. But I think it's it's important to them reflect as a team. And yeah. you said team leader. I mean, students can you know in a team, everyone could have a chance to be the leader in that right. team. You right. know, so that they are all experiencing what it means or what it feels like to be that leader. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, every student leads in different ways you know right, they don't all right. they don't all lead from way out in front some lead from behind right, which is right. it's nice for them to see different styles of leadership right. i mean we've seen some interesting leadership um in the states um that <laughs> 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 we've been watching on the uh, on the tv here mm -hmm. um, so you know we, we can we can have plenty of discussions about what leadership could right. look like or is like about leadership stuff yeah you know and, and <laughs> well fair enough um, and we'll just leave it at that um, we really like the canadian leaders. there you go yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, very good it makes me uh, also think about when you said all students have a chance to to learn what it's uh, what it feels like to lead it mm. also makes me think that students have to learn what it's like to be led 
and to yeah. understand about how how you if could because if everyone's the alpha you know mm. that that type of collaborative team is probably not going to and again it's, it's not, not successful right, exactly it's not yeah. the idea that you you force yourself to take a back seat but yeah. there are times where we have to build consensus there are times exactly. so so we think about mm. you know i just for me it just um it has me I'm sort of in my head right now thinking about, and I, I haven't flushed it out, but I, I just wonder about, I, I think that, that the service learning model really does help contribute to the idea of how do I contribute to the collective? How do I, mm. what's my role in this? And because it's interesting to me that when I talk about collaboration and I talk about, um, you know, collaborative learning, mm -hmm. I talk about it from the point, like my ability to collaborate is influenced mm. by who I'm collaborating with. Exactly. It isn't just this yeah. vacuum, right? So yeah. and, I wonder. And they're going to learn, you know, in, in the future, they're not always going to get to choose who they're collaborating with. It's about learning to collaborate effectively, you know, mm -hmm. with a range of people, you know, and that we right. all have something to offer and learn from each other. It's right. not, you know, it's that that's the skills that they are learning by having those, you know, various collaborative groups that they end mm -hmm. up working with. Um, yeah. And, seems, and appreciating the diversity and equity, you know, in yeah. everyone's got different skills and, and um, mm -hmm. you know, abilities and, and being able to appreciate that and, or agree to disagree. And we all have biases and things mm -hmm. like that. You know, those are those great conversations kids that end up having working yeah. in those collaborative teams. So yeah. and I think that's that's been hard for kids during COVID. You know, they feel so isolated at home and, mm -hmm. and we still need to have those opportunities for students online to be able to collaborate together and mm -hmm. talk to each other. I know my son uh who's 10 really struggled with that because you know there was a class of 20 and you know they they just didn't get to talk to each other and and you know that was the saddest part you know it was like oh they just need some collaboration time <laughs> just to talk to each other it just is I think it really has brought to the forefront the uh how much we all miss that human connection right the, yeah. and students, students yeah. are no different yeah definitely the um the other part, you know, in terms of uh, the collaborative teams, I can see that the collaborative learning model, because we share a common cause, mm. that the, the cause in a way, now you tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems as though the, the, the cause that we're collectively pursuing takes precedent over, you know, ego or, you know, because we're totally. all passionate about this topic, we might yep. find an easier time of developing consensus because mm, we all have a completely yeah right. and you just always have to go back to what is the need why are we all here what's the purpose you right, know once right. kids are reminded of the purpose of why they're doing what they're doing you know mm -hmm. some of those little nit nitpicky things that they would normally have in a in a team in the classroom completely go out the window yeah um you know or Johnny forgot to bring the paint and the, the rest of the group's like, oh my God, we can't paint today because there's no paint. So, you know, they right. certainly learn their roles and responsibilities. No, no, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, no, I just think there's such a, a natural, I mean, the more you're you're talking about the, the model and the, po the possibilities and the potential, the more mm -hmm. you can see how this just... You know, it's it's hard for adults sometimes to remember the big picture of why, and and let alone teenagers or even younger. Um, you yeah. know, so so reminding them of that, I think, can keep them on point. I want to expand yeah. the view now a little bit of of service learning to expand to the idea of we've talked about collaboration, but let's expand and mm -hmm. talk about. 21st century skills in general, critical mm -hmm. thinking and all of that. Yeah. Uh, and I think you've talked a little bit about this already, but let's circle mm -hmm. back 
and and maybe be a little bit more formal with connecting the dot between the dots between service learning and the development of 21st century competencies like where mm. where do you see that overlap and where can skills of uh, schools i should say if they're pursuing uh, an agenda of developing 21st century skills or 21st mm. century learners how specifically does service learning feed into that like i said you've alluded to this but i want mm. to be yeah. a little bit more formal so I talked about the five stages. So in that first stage in the investigation, you know, kids have to put on their critical thinking hat, you know, to really dig into that issue. What is the issue? What is the need in the community? Why are we doing what we're doing? How do they understand it thoroughly? So that's where they need to talk to experts and um, really get some data on what is the, the need to do to do action. And kids really just want to jump straight into action, but then they, they realise oh, we don't actually know what the issue is or what the need in the community is. So mm -hmm. you'll often see that with um, some community service. And, and it's good to know where you're at in your school because you can always, you know, go to the next level. Okay, we're doing community service. How can we adjust it to add some more service learning into the equation? Um, so those skills are going to come up as kids are working together on that issue. So as I said, critical thinking, problem solving. They need to be able to do that to be able to get to the next stage, to be able to do the planning and preparation. Um, so until they've, they've you know, been using those skills and, and self-assessing where they're at, like I said before, you know, um, and you probably, I've shared my single point rubric that has, um, you know, the different um, key skills and dispositions that kids need to be developing but until they understand where they're at they they can't know how they actually what they're going to do to actually try and improve on that so a student can reflect and say well I'm I'm not very empathetic so then they start to make a plan of how they can actually improve on on developing empathy mm -hmm. yeah it it to me seems like such a a natural fit for um again coming back to something we talked about earlier the relevance uh, mm. the, the 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 putting putting this 21st century skill into action and making yeah. sure that that i'm i'm acting upon it in a way that is so authentic uh yeah. and, and immersed in a kind of context that that i care mm. about and, and i and i want yeah, to and they 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 like you said before they're forced but they're forced to communicate so they actually have to improve on their communication right. you know they're going to be told yeah. by the partners pretty quick well actually we yeah. don't we don't speak like that around here and you know mm -hmm. that's right <laughs> so that's right. they yeah. they're definitely and you know even collaborating with each other mm -hmm. um you know they they're learning those skills by doing them I'm starting to connect the dots now more about your Venn diagram, even as you're mm -hmm. you're talking, because I'm seeing that if you just immerse yourself in the service part, when you don't have the background knowledge to understand what exactly you're addressing, or mm -hmm. you may it may seem like you're going rogue because you haven't partnered with people who've been working on that issue, right? So I have some learning to do. I need to do yeah. my homework. I need to understand yeah. that background knowledge. I also should try to develop a collaborative or a partnership with people mm -hmm. who've been working on this issue so I can use yeah. my time efficiently and effectively mm -hmm. and that I'm not actually countering things that they might be doing. And now yeah. I can start serving. So it, it really, uh, those, those, uh, those dots are getting connected for me uh, even more so mm -hmm. the more you talk about the model. So I hope that's happening for, for others who, uh, who <laughs> I mean, some, some of the listeners may be very familiar with the service learning model, but if you're not, I'm starting to see uh, more clearly about how all of those work together to develop 21st century learners. Okay, Tara, here's the big question. I'm in. 
I go to the conference. I listen to Tara's presentation. I've, I like a stalker. I follow Tara around the entire conference for two or three days. And at the end of the conference, I'm like, I'm in. Okay, I'm in as a teacher. I want our school to develop a service learning model. So where do I start? How does a school start? First, okay, how does an individual start? But then how does a school begin? And then how do we develop this model going forward? Yeah. Many different parts to that. So I'm going to try and yeah, answer take, all of Take that. your time because this, um, this might so, be the most important part. So take your time yeah. on this for sure. So for teachers, it, it just implementing the five stages within a unit that they're doing. So choose a unit you're doing, have a look at the concept, um, you know, think about, you know, who could we be collaborating with as a partnership? Most schools have some sort of partnerships already. So I suppose it's knowing what the partnerships are or, you know, get students to sort of look around um, for the partnerships too. Who, who could we be collaborating with on this issue? Um, so you can get students to sort of, you know, talk about, and sometimes parents even at the school know um, different partnerships as well. So you can sort of find them, but it's, it's important to sort of vet them as well, you know, for child safety. So we want to make sure that they're the right partners. It's a safe environment for students to be going to, or the partners can come to the school. Some schools can't actually leave, you know, their campus. So it's nice sometimes that the partners can come to the school to collaborate with them. I know we did that um, in Lagos. And so, yeah, implement the five stages in a unit, you know, give kids time. Most kids do some sort of investigation in a, in a project that they might be working on. Um, give them time to plan and prepare um, for the type of action that they're going to do. Um, and then make time for the action. That's sometimes the thing that gets thrown out. <laughs> Right. Because, oops, we got to the end of the unit. We didn't get to the action part. Right. Um, but there's right. different ways you could do it. You might do the investigation in unit one. Then you might do the planning and preparation in unit two. So there's different approaches that, that mm -hmm. schools and teachers can, um, you know, apply to that. And I told you a little bit about our serve learn model yeah. where yeah. one hour once a week, um, which is what we did in Lagos and at Vin School in um, Vietnam as well, mm -hmm. Uh you know, where students are all doing service learning at the same time. So you can get beautiful cross grade, vertical and horizontal mm -hmm. um, collaboration happening. You know, so our, our 11th grade, um, uh, their unit is on leadership and mentorship. So their whole role for a year is to learn how to lead and mentor others. Every student is a leader and mentor and they're, they're responsible for helping others to do that as well. Mm -hmm. So they're working with the younger grade levels and in developing those skills. Um, so, that's, yeah, that's really, um, you know, I love that idea of, uh, so individual teacher, the way to get going is to just start to infuse those, those stages. Just infuse it in their, a unit. Yeah. Right. Try the five stages in a unit. I mean, right. we, we develop standards and benchmarks, um, mm -hmm. backwards planner, backwards design. Yeah. Yeah, so sure. the standards and benchmarks, we have standards and benchmarks for the five stages and mm -hmm. people can access them on our website if they want to have a look at those. Right. Um, they're free to use. And then from a school perspective, I really love that idea of the, the, the everyone doing the service learning and, and being able to mix the students in a way that allows for that extra layer of mentorship 
Um, you yeah. know, and almost almost as though a a, a cause or a focus yeah. can have a long lasting legacy as kids graduate, but then new kids move through the school. Mm -hmm. If it is in fact a, a even a K twelve school, as many international schools are, but even if you're a high school or a middle school or an elementary school, yeah. there are still there is still overlap and the opportunities for students to learn from each other that leadership and mentor. Yeah, and so they're at, at the start when they, that's the first year basically, but then after a couple of years when the teachers are used to it and the students are used to, you know, we have this time, we're doing our service all together, everyone's involved. Mm -hmm. You can choose which concept you want to do, right? Mm -hmm. So imagine okay. that students and teachers choosing which concept they're passionate about that they want to work on. So then you've got vertical and horizontal you know, yeah. teams all collaborating together on something yeah. that they're really passionate about. Yeah. And maybe it's, you know, a half day, maybe it's, you know, so they're spending a lot more time on it. Maybe the units every six weeks, you've mm -hmm. got a different one. You go choose another one that you're interested in doing, you know, that's that real personalization to the learning right. that, that could happen with, you know, using those concepts and, and teachers and students choosing things that they're interested in collaborating together. Maybe it's something you don't know anything about. I don't know anything about, you know, human rights. So I'm going to go and do that human rights right. unit, you know? So, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's the possibilities that I see, you know, after several years of, of doing the serve learn curriculum, that's my ideal. Yeah, <laughs> People usually know, look at me like I'm, I'm a bit out there, but I'm like, no. can you imagine everyone yeah. choosing what they're going to do? I, I, I can imagine it because, you know, there is something to the idea that, you know, when you're young, I mean, this is probably true of some adults as well, but when you're young, sometimes yeah. you don't even know what you're passionate about until you're exactly. exposed to it, right? Until so, you have those opportunities. So yeah. I, I've had people ask me before, well, do, should it be mandatory? And I'm like, well, to an extent, I think all schools yeah. should have some sort of service learning in involved where all students are involved in that. So at, at the start, you know, when I was at AISJ and I set up the program, um, it was, you know, it was a mandatory and a graduation requirement. So mm. all students were involved and it was IB, but it wasn't, you know, the rest of the school wasn't, you know, mm. um, had had the IB program so it was like well why are they only doing it in grade 11 and 12 why are we not doing that down in elementary school so then it was okay so schools need to think about how are they preparing students for grade 11 and 12 so mm -hmm. you know we had students using manage back you know to to in grade 9 and 10 so that mm -hmm. they were ready as soon as they went into grade 12 um, 11 and 12 they they knew the five stages that was before the five stages was part of CAS um, we were already implementing that way way before you know so and then students in elementary uh, and middle school are getting these those same experiences um, so every year students had access to those opportunities in right. in units um, and I, I still feel that's really important so schools need to know where they're at and then what they need to do to make those next steps. We, well, I said we've got a survey on our um, website that's that sort of asks those specific questions, and right. and that ends up forming part of your framework. You know, so mm -hmm. do you have clarity and consistency? You know, in your school about what is service learning? Why are we doing it? Right. Um, how does it link to our vision and mission statement? You know, a lot of schools, like I said, have it in their vision and mission statement, but they're not actually living it. So until you self-assess where we're at, it's hard to know those steps that you need to take. Is right. there professional development? Is there time for teachers to do the planning? You know, yeah. if there's some of those little elements are missing, you know, the program's generally not sustainable. So right. um, that's the idea is to get a sustainable program.
Right, for sure. Now, as far as the program at the school level is concerned, do you recommend that assuming, you know, there is a budget, assuming there's time, space, et cetera, you know, yeah. I can imagine that schools could be overwhelmed eventually with the number of partnerships. So do you advocate for there to be a coordinator or somebody yeah, who definitely. focuses there, on there that? So talk a, a little bit about that. So when I was at ASJ, I was the coordinator, but then I needed divisional reps as well in each division. We had two campuses, so um, uh, Pretoria and, and Johannesburg. So we had, you know, um, reps at, at Pretoria and reps at, at Joburg so that, you know, you, you're also growing leadership and mentorship. So you're not the only one who, who is, is running the program. Everyone has a responsibility. And um, the partnerships, I would always do the, you know, the sign off on which partnerships because I, I knew what we were looking for and what the connections in the curriculum were. So I, I you know, we developed sort of a little criteria list of, of how to sort of evaluate a partnership, you know, do they have the same sort of vision and mission, you know, aligned with the school, um, is it safe? Mm-hmm. Um, we always also had a, a no cash um, policy, so it wasn't about you know a handout. You know, mm-hmm. it was more, it was more about a collaborative together. So that was always in in those conversations. I'd always have at the start. You know, finding out those real needs mm-hmm. um, is important. And and what worked really well is having all the partners meet each other as well, because then they you know could collaborate on different different things as well. So yeah, um, yeah, big big part is having partnerships, but you could just have one, you know, just partnering with another school, you know, Mm -hmm. you can, you can do all sorts of things, um, you know, depending on what their needs are. So, yeah. So it's just something to think about as, as a school's uh, model begins to evolve, you may get to a point where you want to consider one or a handful of coordinators. Yeah. Obviously the the proof of need would be that there is, a groundswell of support and the kids are clamoring for this opportunity. Yeah, they're interested. Yeah, right. yeah. And they want to collaborate. Sure. Yeah, that's right. So mm-hmm. I want to finish by just giving you a chance because I, I think there's a lot of really great content on your website. Uh, servelearn.co uh, is the website. And I'll mention that again at the end end of this interview, but to make sure that that people are able to get there. But could you talk a little bit about you, you have so many great resources. There's a blog, there's some free resources. Talk about, you know, when people go to your website, which I would really encourage people to do because it really is, it's user-friendly. There's a lot of great information there. What's on the website? What, how, how, what can people access when they're there? Uh, and what are some of the things? You mentioned that survey. So let's talk a little bit about what people can find on the servelearn.co website. Yeah, so um, we have a range of different services that we provide with different consultants um, around the world. They also have full teaching jobs. So I'm the main person uh, working full time in Servland, but right. we have many different consultants that can help um, around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so we really tailor our strategy to meet the needs of each learning organisation. So it's it's understanding what the needs of the schools are um, and maybe it's professional development that you know teachers need to get that understanding um, maybe it's student leadership training um, you know there's so many different elements you might be unit writing so um, during COVID lockdown uh, we, we ended up taking all our what we would do in person in a workshop and putting them online mm-hmm. so we now have a 101 a 201 a 301 which is the coordinator one so mm-hmm. the 101 is basically a uh, you know, what is service learning? Why do we do it? So it's a great 
great place to start and you know we can do packages for schools mm -hmm. 201 is really digging into curriculum um, and the alignment so um, you know having a unit that you want to integrate service learning in and then we we help people do the five stages and an assessment that would go with that mm -hmm. um, and then the 301 is the coordination so what do you need to do as a coordinator to run a school a lot of a lot of schools say you're bags you're it you're the coordinator and they go what do what do i do, <laughs> what do, I do? Right. <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah so we help help them come up with uh alignment with strategic planning and, and an action plan. So they come away with a, a really thorough action plan um, to be able to implement with their school. So they have to collaborate with their principals and, and director of school to be able to, you know, complete that. So, yeah, there, and then we have the student leadership one as well. So getting students to be the leaders. So what I really loved at ASJ was that the students were really running the program. Um, in the end, the teachers were the facilitators and, you know, right. it, it was great because they, you know, were they would run all the leadership for all the new students and men, help mentor. They would go and, you know, set goals, do feedback, mm -hmm. you know, do the funding. Um, you know, it was incredible. So to, to be able to get students to really lead a school in, in that mm. program is, is quite powerful. So that's yeah. our student leadership one as well. That, that student leadership part mm. reminds me of uh, just listeners, you'll recall that uh, in episode four, I had my colleague, Nicole, episode five, we had, she's in Minneapolis, mm. Tara, and she has this organization, a nonprofit called Thrive Education, which is putting students in as partners and reimagining education. And it just reminds me so much different, you know, contexts and different themes, but yeah. the same idea of putting students at the forefront as real partners in the learning experience, as opposed to just giving lip service to it. So it's just a lot of, again, a lot of dots connecting for me in terms of the collective work. Um, Tara is also being uh, rather humble. Listeners, when you go to that website, you're going to see a great collection of blog posts, uh, really thorough. Well, <laughs> yeah. And, and listen, Tara, well-researched, uh, very thorough, very detailed. So a lot of great content there that is uh is an easy way, listeners, if you're intrigued about service learning, a, a great spot to uh, to check out. So I'll mention that again as we finish up. But uh, Tara, we're going to finish today with a little bit of fun, as I always do. I'm going to ask you, uh, this is a chance for people to get to know you a little bit uh, on a personal level, uh, just to know, get to know you a little bit more. Nothing too intrusive, just some fun questions that I'm going to put to you that uh, you don't know are coming, but I'm going to ask these questions <laughs> and just, just a chance for us to have a little... Uh, a little fun banter and, and some fun questions, but again, nothing that is going to em embarrass you or anything like that. So okay. um, I've got five <laughs> questions to finish up and then I've got one final question about right. success that I'm gonna ask you. But here's the first question I wanna ask you, just a, 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 mm -hmm. a personal perspective. If you had to choose, would you choose, if you had to choose between these two, one vacation for four weeks or four vacations mm -hmm. of one week each? Mm. Four vacations, definitely. Okay, and mm -hmm. and how come? Why four vacations of one week each? Uh, because you could spread them out, you know, okay. during the year instead of having a big chunk. And I, it's one of those things like in Australia, we we have two week holidays every ten weeks, and mm -hmm. we don't have the two months off like right. you know North America does. So in right. June, July, that's our winter. We don't you know, we want to go somewhere tropical, yeah. obviously, um, in June, July, but it's just for the two weeks. So you have 10 weeks and then you have two weeks. So yeah. I, I've 
always really liked that, that yeah. I always know I'm going to get a holiday soon. So. Yeah, it's nice. I, 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 I sometimes find four weeks is too much. I go, right. oh, I'm ready to get back to work. I'm like, I'm online researching and studying. Right, right. <laughs> I, think, I think by uh, week three, I would be worried about all the emails piling up and all the stuff that was in there. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, number two. Uh, what was the last song, band, or playlist you were listening to before we came together for this interview? What's the last song you listened to? Oh, my. Uh... <laughs> you know I'm not going to be able to check, so. <laughs> no, I know, and I'm trying to remember. I just, I always just have the radio on. Honestly, yeah. I don't. Okay. <laughs> don't um, How about remember this? Let's, what let's, actual let's, song let's... I was listening to. No problem. Oh. Uh, Favorite mm -hmm. favorite band or solo artist growing up when you were a teenager? Who was your favorite? Who did, you were obsessed in with? Excess. In, in excess. excess. When I was a, a youngster, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I was really into them. Yeah, I had lots I'm, of favorite bands. Yeah, and Dave Grohl, I mm -hmm. kind of liked, you know, his stuff too. Yeah. So, I'm a yeah. I'm a big uh, I'm a big in excess fan as well. So uh, that we yeah, have in common. Right. Uh, three. <laughs> what is the um, what is the one thing about Australians that people outside of Australia almost universally misunderstand? I know you're not a monolith, but people have a perspective on Australians. What are we getting wrong? What do we get wrong about uh, Australia or Australians or what, what, what is it that we continue to misunderstand? Uh, I think Australians are a little sarcastic and, um, you know, their, their sense of humor is a little, a little different. Um, okay. as opposed, I mean, th there's a lot of banter and I suppose, I think people misin misinterpret interpret that is that, oh, okay. you know, obviously they're, they're, we know they're joking, but other people find it sometimes a little offensive. <laughs> so don't take out our banter offensively because right, we're just right. bantering. That's <laughs> just, just the way you are for sure. It's just yeah, no, how I, we are. Yeah. And that, we, that... we have lots of slang. And so what yeah. I also learned was that, um, one thing that was very interesting is that you you guys that we would we you should know this and i didn't know this until i worked in in uh, kuwait you guys call it a, a fanny <laughs> <laughs> we 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 call something else okay <laughs> other side anyway right. it's yeah. very confusing a girl told me she fell on her fanny and i was like uh, oh my god it was really yeah. Oops. <laughs> you can cut that out. <laughs> that's, no, that's that's fine. Hey, it is what it is. You, you're, that's you're, one thing you should know. This is, this <laughs> Don't is say all, Fanny. <laughs> that's right. Don't say that in Australia. It's and all thong. It, and thong. thong. Yes. Well, that's, yeah. Exactly. There you yeah. go. There's yeah. two things. <laughs> there you go. It's all about the Flip learning, flops. Tara. That's right. Flip flops. <laughs> that's right. Uh, number four. If you if you were forced to change careers. Like say education mm -hmm. wasn't on the table and let's just assume schooling or training is taken care of. If you were forced to change mm -hmm. careers, uh, what would you choose and why? What would be, what's another career you'd be intrigued by? Uh, I'd probably work for national parks in conservation. Yeah. Okay. Quite passionate about that. Um, yeah. yeah. So doing regeneration projects and things like mm -hmm. that. Oh, um, erosion and I don't know, it's kind mm -hmm. of my little pet projects that I do yeah. on the side. I live close to the beach, so I'm, I'm working okay. on a conservation project down there. We've got some erosion, so I'm replanting mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. yeah, probably that. Okay. 
So you just had to throw that in there that you live close to the beach. You just want to rub I it do, in a really little bit close, more. Yeah. Literally yeah. over yeah. the hill. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay. We're yeah, we're fine. We're all fine, Tara. Uh, yeah, 30 degrees. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. Well, they, yeah, okay. Enough already. <laughs> all right. Uh, last question. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, this is a question that around Christmas time always gets debated, and it's the question about mm-hmm. Die Hard, the movie. Uh, oh. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Hmm. If you're a Die Hard fan, it is, definitely. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that's two for two. Last week, Bill Ferreter said Die Hard was most definitely a Christmas movie. So we're, so the yes side of this equation is two and oh. Um, hmm. It's always interesting that a movie, just because it takes place at Christmas time, there's that debate about mm. whether it's actually a Christmas movie. But uh, mm. so far, yeah. so far, then the it yes is. Well, what is a Christmas movie? What qualifies for a Christmas right, that's movie? A, that's Does it have question. to have Christmas carols or a Christmas tree? Right. Mm. Right. Yeah, that's that's, that's exactly. A postman, a Santa. <laughs> right, right. Well, if you're watching the the you know so? there's there's a certain formula that most Christmas movies follow, but uh, we'll see. Yeah. It's interesting though. But uh, yeah, it it must be um, you know uh, interesting. I guess from a North American perspective, you grow up this way. But from a North American perspective, unless you live in the the southern part of the United States or somewhere, be, being in a warm climate at Christmas time is just something that is we, atypical for, for me. Must we're be, at must the be beach. Wonderful. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're at the beach. We, I never understood why Santa was always in this woolly clothes. You know, right. as a kid, I was like, why is he not wearing his, his you know, beach outfit? <laughs> right. Right. It's yeah. too hot. Yeah. It's thirty exactly. degrees usually on Christmas Day. We're right. we're we're all in the pool or at the beach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just a, a an interesting uh, uh, just an interesting difference between you know we, mm. we I guess you know we, we always assume things about you know where we live and uh, and and forget mm. sometimes that uh, these these things take place at the same time of year, but. The weather's not mm. the same and the traditions may yeah. not be traditions always not the, the same. same. Yeah. Right, right, for yeah, sure. We don't have the mulled wine because it's not cold. It's, right. <laughs> it's right. warm. We're like, put some ice in that. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. All right, I have one final question for you, Tara. And this is a question okay. I've been asking all of the uh, people I've interviewed because one of the things I'm trying to do with the podcast is kind of run this theme about uh, success and happiness. And, uh, you know, eventually we're going to expand that as far as the podcast is concerned, but mm-hmm. I'm finishing every interview with this question. And it is the question of success. If a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what is your definition of success? How would you answer them? What would you say to them? I think success is whatever you want it to be. Okay. Um, where they're successful in, you know, learning something new. Uh, success can be achieving a goal, um, can be happiness. It's mm-hmm. not always about money or, right. you know, I don't know. Uh, it's, that's, it's a hard question to actually yeah. answer. Yeah. Um, for me, yeah. it's about being happy and, you know, in mm-hmm. happy in where you are in your life, you know, mm-hmm. wherever that may be. So. So it's interesting the way the way that it makes me think that as you're answering that it's not you know the person saying what is your definition of success and you're turning that around on them and saying what is your definition of success mm. like how do you define it and yeah. then seeking out whatever that definition is I mean that's an interesting take on that for sure that that it really is up to each of us to define 
what we think success is. Success and then is. And I think we all have that. a different opinion on what success is. So it's, it's, right. a, it's a great one to chat about. <laughs> it's a personal definition for sure. Uh, Tara, I really appreciate you taking the time to join me today. Uh, listeners, I would really encourage you to follow Tara on Twitter. Uh, her Twitter handle is at Tara M. Barton. That's on mm -hmm. Twitter. You also follow the Serve Learn uh, handle on Twitter. That's at Serve Learn Co. Co. Mm -hmm. at the end. Yeah. Um, and Serve Learn Co. is also on Instagram. So if you're on Instagram and you want to follow uh, Serve Learn Co. there as well. And Tara had mentioned we talked a couple of times about the website. The website is www.servelearn.co, uh, mm -hmm. and that's where you can find all of those great resources. Uh, Tara, again, I, I really want to thank you for carving out some time for this. Uh, it's for, you know, for me and I hope for listeners, it's been very insightful in terms of learning about what a service learning model could look like. And I'm sure uh, many listeners are inspired to either begin their service learning journey or maybe reinvigorate their service learning mm -hmm. journey and begin to focus and, and take it to another level. So I, I, again, I want to thank you so much. And I know at some point down the road, we'll have a chance to do this again, but thanks so much, Tara. Thank you so much, Tom. It's been fun. <laughs> Great. Awesome. In assessment corner this week, I received a question, actually two questions from Teresa, the uh, chemistry teacher from Illinois and part-time curriculum director. Uh, you'll recall that Teresa also submitted a question in episode four about student accountability. So Teresa, I really appreciate you uh, sending these questions in. Uh, Teresa's first question is essentially this, how much reliance in the age of Google should teachers place on memorization? And my very quick answer to that question is not much. Um, I'm not sure when it comes to memorization that the extremes are really that beneficial for the conversation, however, but I pretty much would say not very much at all. You know, Memorization or memorizing everything is, you know, as a task in and of itself, is a bit archaic. Uh, you know, teachers used to be the curators of knowledge. We used to be, we used to vet the materials, etc. But now information is accessible to students 24-7. Uh, students can fact check us <laughs> in real time. So that's also something to, to think about. But although they have access to all of this information, the question, of course, in 2020 is and beyond is, how do you know that the sources you're accessing are credible? I do still think it's important to know things. I know that there's this sentiment out there that's, you know, if, if students can Google the answer to your question, then it's not a very good question. And, and I really do understand the point and I appreciate it. But I also think there is an importance to knowing things. Because if on the other extreme, every single time you have to know something, you've got to go look it up, you're going to disrupt the flow of whatever it is you're doing. Even if you're working on something more complex, if you're constantly looking things up that and not knowing things, then that can interfere as well. We also shouldn't be too dismissive of memorization and recall because anyone who's uh, who has children uh, would know that you'd be very grateful and thankful that your child can recall your cell phone number if they happen to be lost at the mall or something like that. So I think, you know, there's there's extreme positions where they don't have to know anything and they can just look everything up. And then there's the other side of the question, which is you got to memorize everything and do everything from recall and retrieval. I don't think either of those is helpful. Um, 
But so let's get a little bit more nuanced with this because I do think like an assessment, as I always say, everything in assessment has, you know, nuance and context sensitivity, et cetera. So I think when it comes to memorization or, and, I, and again, that word has such a negative connotation, but when it comes to memorization, make the distinction between learning and grading. So for learning, especially over time, uh, retrieval or at least knowing where to find things, um, I think you can make the case for that. I think that through experience and through repetitiveness and through practice, students will begin to know things that would be helpful for them to not disrupt the flow of, you know, their higher level thinking, the project or the inquiry-based learning experience that they're having. But as far as grading is concerned, I think memorization should play no role in that at all because, um, you know, most of the standards are much more sophisticated than memorizing uh, a number of different facts. And so you already, when you talk about memorizing and counting that towards someone's grade, you already have a disconnect between what the standards were, what the learning goals were, and what the activity of assessment was and how you know the disconnect or the, the, the distance between those two experiences. The other part is that the memorization pieces can actually make determining proficiency more difficult. Because imagine a scenario where a student on, say, a, a fairly, you know, let's just say a fairly traditional or lengthy assessment, a student makes some simple errors or mistakes on the recall questions or the memorized items, right? So it's the simple stuff at the beginning of the assessment, typically how that's organized, right? All the multiple choice or the recall questions at the front end of the assessment. So let's say they make some simple mix-ups on those memorized items, but then they actually correct them later on in the assessment because in section C or section D of this test, you're actually having them use that factual information for some higher level thinking skills and it's clear and obvious to you that within the responses to those more sophisticated questions that the student has corrected those misunderstandings because they weren't misunderstandings in the first place. They were just simple mistakes. So now you have this dilemma of the early evidence, which shows error, and the later evidence, which shows proficiency. So if you're going to take the later evidence as proficiency and dismiss the early evidence, then what is it doing on the assessment in the first place? Now, I would argue that it's not necessary to have it there. It'd be probably more beneficial to assess those foundational pieces a week or two ago when students are beginning uh, their journey along the learning progression, uh, not at the very end on the unit assessment. So it is important to know things. I think it's important to be able to retrieve things, but I think that occurs naturally over time. I don't think we need to force that. I think that repetitive practice and repetitive work and I don't, again, mean the negative uh, connotation of repetitiveness. What I mean is if I'm analyzing and interpreting data several times, if I'm, you know, if I'm, you know, making models to explain and justify, if I'm developing questions of inquiry and, and researching and trying to find, you know, solutions to dilemmas, et cetera, when I, when I repetitively do those things, I start to know things from retrieval or from recall. So we have just over the years, so how do you get people to think differently about this? Well, over the years, we've really just almost romanticized trivia, you know, and, and while you might have just, you know, crushed it on Trivial Pursuit or done well on Jeopardy, um, we've kind of 
conflated this idea of memorizing random facts with how quote unquote smart you are. And I think we have to sort of try to move away from that. So if you're an instructional coach or a curriculum director or somebody like that, the key is to help your colleagues see that the doing something with that is more sophisticated with the knowledge, right? So it's the doing something with the knowledge that is um, that is sourced, the knowledge that they find, the knowledge that they can they can get to. Help your colleagues see that that's not just possible, but it actually allows students to thrive and reach sort of the cognitive complexity of what the learning goals actually are. You know, some people would would assert that, well, if you don't know things, how are you supposed to think deeply about that? And that is true to a point because my content proficiency will be connected to, the research on critical thinking is pretty compelling and it talks about how important it is that you have a grounding in that discipline. So understanding a topic or a subject or something is tied to your ability to think critically about it. At the same time, we don't want that to become an inhibitor. We don't want a student's inability to remember something to delay their ability to sort of dig deeper. And so I think that's where the balance comes in because you have to know things in order to think critically or to think sort of deeply and intimately about a, about a subject. But does it always have to be memorized? I don't think so. The virtual and hybrid learning models also are making this memorizing of facts almost obsolete because to do so is to really set students up for failure. One of the great questions that came along in the spring especially, but it still exists to, you know, today with, with the hybrid models is, Tom, what do we do about academic dishonesty? And what do we do about cheating? Well, if you're asking students to do things of memorization and recall in a virtual learning environment, you are setting them up for failure. Because with high anxiety and stress that all that, that is bringing with COVID, um, you're going to have students who are, who are going to make poor decisions because they're teenagers or younger. We know that for very young students, some of their standards and some of their learning goals are recall-based, and, and that makes sense. But as students get older, we know the standards are much more sophisticated than just remembering things. And so that's where we need to put the eye on the prize. So as an instructional coach or a curriculum director, as Teresa is, or, or someone in a position where you're influencing others, keep on message with the idea that the whole experience centers around the sophisticated nature of the learning standards or the goals that, that are established for the class. Help your colleagues imagine what a deeper kind of more sophisticated demonstration of learning would look like. What I've learned over the years is that sometimes resistance is just a lack of clarity. And so some colleagues will resist shifting away from assessments that are about recall or memorization because they can't envision, they can't see what the different would look like. And if I'm a veteran teacher, it's pretty hard for me to admit that I don't know or I don't get it or I don't understand. So help them see where that can go because sometimes just clearing out a little bit of the path, just giving them a little bit of a vision of what that might look like could be all that they need in order to then see that it isn't just memorizing the information, but it's using the information for a higher purpose or a deeper purpose that matters the most. Teresa's second question had to do with uh, distinguishing between the task and the assessment. And essentially her question was, how do we help teachers 
to consider the multi-dimensions of learners without telling them what to do? How do we not force teachers to change their assessment methods, but to understand that if the learning targets don't specifically uh, relate to writing, why does every assessment have to be in written form? Essentially, that's the question. So the first thing I think we do is we just keep reminding our colleagues that assessment is the bridge between what you're making the students do and your ability to recognize the degree to which they've learned. And it's the assessment that reveals that, right? The task is the means. The task is I'm going to make you do this so I can understand the degree to which you have met the learning targets or the learning goals or the standards. And we know that assessment methods aren't interchangeable. So there are times where the assessment methods are a better fit for certain standards or learning goals, right? So selected response, constructed response, and performance assessment are a good fit for certain types of learning standards. And I'm not going to get into uh, too much of the details with, with that right now, but, but those methods are, are not interchangeable. They are really locked into certain levels of complexity or certain types of learning goals. But the format is negotiable. So if, for example, we determined that a standard was most conducive to a constructed response question, well, that constructed response, if the standard makes no mention of writing, that constructed response could be in written format. It could be oral. It could also be a project. It could be something that they construct. And again, just a reminder, the difference between constructed response and a performance assessment is the level of authenticity, right? Performance assessment is any demonstration of mastery that attempts to emulate the authentic context within which that learning is meant to be applied. So not every project is necessarily a performance assessment or an authentic assessment, but every project is definitely a constructed response. Having students respond in written format or typed out is alluring because it is asynchronous and, and teachers can handle the workload. And one of the questions that teachers often have about responding orally or in different types of dimensions is, you know, how do I do that? So again, sometimes what looks like resistance is a lack of clarity. Making sure you have clear criteria. And, and again, as I mentioned in a previous episode, task neutral criteria is really helpful here too, because this wins some favor with colleagues from a practical perspective, but I also think it's sound practice in that if you change the task but are assessing the same learning, you can use the same rubric. Now, another approach might be to talk to your colleagues a little bit about some hypotheticals. For example, is it possible to know a lot about a subject but not be able to write it down or to type it out? Or is it easier to explain something orally than, or is it easier to explain something in written form? You know, just start to throw some ideas out there and just from their own personal experience, talk about that. One of the easiest things to do in our work is to just blow the doors open and, and say to students, you can show me what you know in whatever format you want to, and you can use your creativity and your imagination. That's the easy part. The hard part, the heavy lifting, is the teacher being able to actually identify and recognize what learning has actually occurred. So the challenge we face as educators sometimes is as uh, excited as we might be about giving students an opportunity to show what they know in a variety of formats, we have to be able to look at those demonstrations and recognize and often infer 
that that demonstration meets this learning standard or goal or outcome to this degree on the rubric or on the criteria. So what sometimes intimidates teachers is the idea of all or nothing. I either do it all in written form or I blow the doors open and that overwhelms people. So one other suggestion might be to start small. I know it's a cliche, but think big, but start small. Maybe start with two choices, okay? And start with where your colleague is most comfortable. So it might be beginning with the teacher saying, you can either do it in written form or this way, say a demonstration, or they could record themselves on voice record apps or record themselves in, in video format or what have you. And so as teachers gain more comfort with those demonstrations, they may be able to expand the repertoire. The other thing that teachers can do is blow the doors open, but put some responsibility on the students, which is to say, when you come and tell me how you're going to demonstrate your learning, you need to be specific with telling me where to look or what to look for. So how I will know that you have learned that. And that's how teachers can get more comfortable with demonstrations that are somewhat atypical. Okay, so blowing the doors open and just letting students show what they know in a variety of formats is fantastic. And it's a great way to help them take advantage of their creativity and their imagination and their passions and all of those things. But unless the teacher is able to recognize the, the learning to a fairly deep level of sophistication, then it really becomes almost counterproductive that we can't know that the students have actually demonstrated what it is they were supposed to have demonstrated. So like I said, I know it's a cliche, but think big, start small, begin with two choices or three choices where the teacher is most comfortable. Now, it's not just about being comfortable forever. Start with where we're comfortable, but then continue to push ourselves and bring the students into that conversation and say, if you want to demonstrate your learning in an atypical way, you're going to have to help me understand what to look for or what I'm looking at so I can recognize that you meet this learning goal. You see, and if you do that, you only need one rubric or one, you know, one set of criterion because you all that's that's all you're focused on is the learning. You're not focused on on assessing all 10 or 12 different ways that the students are demonstrating. So for me, it's about being clear on what we're focused on, which is the learning outcomes, um, helping them understand or imagine what this might look like through some of those question prompts, and then talking to them about just allowing for another option at the beginning, and then being able to sort of expand their repertoire going forward. That's it for today. Uh, just a reminder that there is still time to register for uh, Grading from the Inside Out, the two-day training that's happening December 10th and 11th. That event is almost sold out. So if you are interested in that, uh, information can be found on the solutiontree.com website. Uh, there's still some space available, but uh, you should probably do that sooner or later if you're interested in that uh, training. Remember to follow the podcast Twitter account for updates on the show. At uh, Tom Shimmer Pod is the podcast Twitter handle. My personal sort of professional handle is at Tom Shimmer. Also, please email me your questions for Assessment Corner or any suggestions and feedback you have about the podcast. The email for the show is tomshimmerpod at gmail.com. Next week, my guest will be my dear friend and colleague, Cassandra Erkins. Uh, there is no one with whom I've worked more closely with over the last decade than Cassandra, obviously along with Nicole. 
Uh, so I'm really looking forward to that conversation. Talking about assessment is what Cassandra, Nicole, and I do all the time. So it will be just another installment uh, of that. We're going to focus the conversation around common assessments and explore the ins and outs of common assessments in a remote, uh, virtual, or hybrid learning context. So again, thanks for joining me this week. Please subscribe, rate, review the podcast, and please spread the word. I would love the opportunity to expand the listening audience. Have a great week, everyone.